So I'm going to break the fourth wall here and just address the audience right now. I want everyone to know that approximately five minutes before the starting of this video, Chris said, we really need to be better about being on time to things, especially in meetings. And I was like, I totally agree. I want to give you guys a picture of what happened last night. At about 9.30 last night, Chris texted me. Oh. <laughs> I put on our calendar that from 10 a.m., which is late in the morning, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., we would be filming podcasts. He was the first to say, yes, he's coming to that, and he approved it on the calendar. You're welcome. He texted me last night, 12 hours before this podcast, and said, hey, if I get there at 10.30, can I leave by one? <laughs> Which, if you translate that, it's saying, if I get there a half hour late, could I then leave two hours early? <laughs> yes, correct. So, I'm just struggling to understand... You know, I think time is a construct and it's very fluid. And I don't know if we, <laughs> I think it's a, I think we made up time and I just don't know if that we should live by its standards anymore. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So we're going to be more on time for meetings or we're not going to be I will more be on more time on time for meetings. I promise to be more on time for meetings. Awesome. I will continue to leave early. <laughs> I can't give that up. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, welcome to the Back to Basis podcast. This is a podcast where my brother, Chris, an ER physician and me, a firefighter paramedic nurse, uh, talk about complicated what are sometimes considered to be complicated medical topics we break them back down to the basics to make them easily digestible for your little brains that's, that's like the new thing that's in little brains every time. little brains yeah okay um if you want a ce for this get one. Oh, should we Go make our, should we make the announcement part yet I feel by the time this hits we'll still be like a month or so off okay. but see nursing ce credits are coming remember we told you last podcast to get your audience of nurses ready mm-hmm Nursing CEs are Get coming. Get them ready more. Get them actually ready. Get them more ready more. We kind of were like blowing smoke before. Now we're not. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want continuing education credits for EMS uh, through CAPSI, you can go to guardiancme.com and listen to this podcast there. If you are going to do that, stop it now on Spotify, whatever you're listening to, and go do it because unfortunately CAPSI requires that we do make you re-listen to it on the platform. Uh, take a quick quiz. You'll get your credits. We report directly to CAPSI. If you are a nurse or if you know of nurses... You probably can't <laughs> do that with this one. But in the next well, couple of months... If you're listening be, to this in the far future... Yes. If you are listening to this in the far future, within the last next we're pretty months, sure We're pretty sure we can still give a half credit. We'll maybe, figure it out. We'll update you on the you know next podcast we'll about this one. We'll come back with more information. <laughs> but nursing credits are coming. It's it's a, And it's an actual thing now. We're super excited about it. Uh, very, par- very excited to be um, partnering with um, Teresa who's going to be helping us kind of get that done over the next couple of months. So, yeah, it's going to be good. We're very excited. What are we talking about today? Cool. Today's topic is, I'm titling it, The Sickest Syndrome, Sepsis. So We've never really talked about sepsis. We talked about inflammatory and immune response before. We've never really talked about sepsis, and it's kind of a big topic to talk about. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about this more globally, uh, just kind of like about how to recognize it, what it is, what the pathophysiology is, and then kind of get into like what you can do as a provider at any level to recognize it, and then what's done to handle it. I think sometimes sepsis can come across as an intimidating topic because of how much research and stuff we've done to build out, like, suspicion tools and to quantify it. You know what I mean? Like, we've talked about this before, where, like, in medicine, as soon as you start to define syndromes or you know, a set of, a set of symptoms and or like it, it almost complicates it more than it should. Like the body's been doing the same thing the body's been doing way before we ever defined in our terms, the different ways it does it. Mm-hmm. And I think in sepsis specifically, we've taken a lot of time and it's great to like really like 
look at data and research and come up with a lot of different like diagnostic tools, a lot of different definitions within it, which I think then can sometimes inadvertently make it seem like it's way more complicated than it is. It's at least it's, in my experience. Yeah. And it's really not that complicated. Like, and the, but the, like the false information about it is like everywhere. Like I doing research just a couple of days ago, like you look up sepsis online and you'll find stuff that says it's a blood infection. You'll find stuff that says it's a systemic infection. You'll find stuff. Like it's none of those things. It's an and immune it's response. A, and it's some of all that a little bit too. Like it's, yeah, it's like, like a global if, immune response, which we'll get into. Yeah. But. So it's kind of interesting, but uh, we'll, we'll go over all that. And one of the reasons why sepsis is such a big deal and it's concentrated on so much is that it is the number one reason for hospital death. It's also the number one reason for hospital readmission. Hmm. Good so if you follow the money, <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. If you follow the money, hospitals are going to put a lot of education out in terms of let's handle sepsis and try to prevent it. Uh, from developing and try to treat it very quickly when we see it so that we don't get people back into the hospital that we have to pay for and their insurance won't cover. And and there's the prevention component, so right? So that we don't have people die and then we have like a bad, you know, yeah. when Jason's hospital is cranking out a 50% death rate. Or we just don't want people but to die. they don't want to concentrate on a 50% save rate. Oh, it's just, it's all how you spin it. If you have a good enough PR firm, you really don't have to worry about sepsis. That's true. <laughs> so, no, but I think sepsis too is something that like, in, in some ways, I think you can look at it as being almost preventable. And that's, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I think that sepsis is something that early identification and identifying the warning signs of an infection going towards that, we can we can do a lot of preventative measures as well. And that's why there's a lot of research and data on, like, how to have a high index of suspicion for it based on symptoms, how to treat in certain specific ways for good outcomes. So, yeah. And I don't love that we like act like it's its own disease. Like, like the, the reason the statistics is that it's the number one death in hospitals is like you, you died of an infection and then you went septic within that infection. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's different perpetrators like you from, of the crime. Yeah, <laughs> you know you can I mean? die like, from sepsis from a UTI from a skin, inf a diabetic ulcer skin infection. Right. From if you die of illness, there's a decent chance that you died of sepsis. Is kind of what I'm getting yeah. at in hospital. You know what I mean? Because like you, that infection, whatever it is, got to the point that it caused a global immune response, and then you die under those conditions. So like it's kind of weird, but we'll talk about it. So to get started, let's talk about what is a normal immune response and what therefore is an infection in general. Sure. So. An infection is when anything that's not a part of your body, anything that is foreign to your body is considered a pathogen. Okay. An antigen. And well, path yeah, and pathogens have antigens. So like parts of pathogens we call antigens because they're the parts that our immune system might bind to. Mm -hmm. But so pathogen enters your body, and that's normal. That happens every day, right? Like you eat dirt, because everybody eats dirt every day, <laughs> and <laughs> pathogens enter your body, and your body just takes care of it, right? It, it like... Kills that, eats it up, gone. Like an antigen would be a foreign substance and a pathogen would be a harmful foreign substance. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if the pathogen, though, bypasses that first layer of defense and is able to start to reproduce and grow, then it's technically defined as an infection, right? So that's that's infection in simple terms, right? Like, Because I think sometimes people think that like, oh, if influenza virus enters my body, I'm infected. no. Right? Like you could cough on me right now if you had influenza. I could inhale it. My body could just take care of that right away. And I never got infected or like that's, that's a normal thing to happen. Yeah. It's I mean? whether or not that starts to reproduce. Right. When it starts to reproduce and grow is when it's considered an infection because it's kind of in some ways bypassed that first immune response, which is just right. the normal response. 
So when you have an infection, go ahead. So in terms of our immune response or our bodies, we're just going to talk about basically like immunity in general or our body's defense mechanisms when we say immune response, because we're going to talk a lot about the inflammatory response too, which is like very much married to the immune response. It's a part of it, but also kind of a separate set of things that happen. But anyway, in some ways, do you know what the largest immune organ is? Your skin. Oh, I was about, just about to say, like, first we have physical barriers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting fact. Okay. So, <laughs> so anyway, we have physical barriers, right? Uh, our skin and our mucous membranes to catch in bacteria so that when I cough and get influenza on Chris, maybe it doesn't even get into his system at all because we have physical barriers and ways to do that, right? You could chalk that up to being part of your immune system in a, in a way. When we have a virus, bacteria, pathogen that starts to get into our systems or get into our cells, we have recognizers of that. So we have cells that recognize that there's bad things. We have cells that then create cascades in order to bring in soldiers to fight that. There's a lot of different types of soldiers. There's soldiers that come up and inject into cells and explode them, which are cool. <laughs> there's soldiers that come kind. and eat them. There are soldiers that absorb them and poop them out. There are lots of you different start th- types. When you're saying that, if you start thinking about a real army and what different parts of the Very like, effective army. It's, it's a terrifying <laughs> army. Exactly. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, that's... Right. You're just like... I just picture a castle, a castle wall. You go out to meet them, and one guy's just cannibalizing everyone. Another guy... You know what I mean? Like, it's... The goddess, he's creating the thing. He's like, so there's going to be bad things. And how we fight these bad things is we inject into them and it explode, or they eat it and crap it out. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, whoa, whoa. That's a, Couldn't just delete them or something? All right. That's the that's right. aggressive... <laughs> response anyway so we have lots of different soldiers that do lots of different things uh different white blood cells things like that we also have an inflammatory response that happens where basically uh your temperature rises because viruses and bacteria have trouble surviving in hotter environments but a big reason for that is it causes like the dilation of vessels which slows down then blood flow and fluid flow which allows us to basically compartmentalize the areas where the virus or bacteria is rampant so it can't get systemic it can't like basically get out and start traveling all over everywhere in our body we can kind of like cordon off the area that we're fighting it and and defeat that that dilation too like the slowing down of the blood flow in those areas allows for those white blood cells to get out of the bloodstream and go into the i mean they're able to like like if they're going by rapid flow it's like they're on like a a rapid river and like they got to be able to get off the raft vessels have to basically dilate enough just to make spaces for the larger soldiers to be able to get out of the bloodstream and and help out so while we're talking about because there's another interesting fact i have i have a lot of interesting facts i'm realizing like little isms (laughs) from chris i'm starting to realize i have a lot of interesting facts about the immune system but you you know where when your like body's just you know, a normal normal homeostasis where the majority of your white blood cells you probably know this because i've talked about this before but where the your white blood cells hang out your testicles nope <laughs> no, on the lining of the blood vessels yeah exactly so they're actually stuck to the lining of your blood vessels so your red blood cells are floating by and they're stuck to the wall so as soon as there is any kind of alarm system that it's time to treat this they hop off the wall jump into the bloodstream and go to that area and then if the body is slowing blood flow down in that area, that allows them to, you know, squeeze out of the blood vessel and into that area to fight. The immune system, honestly, is like a really cool topic. And it's, it's called demargination, too. So they're in the margin of the blood vessel. All right, dude, we got you a little factoid. No, there's more, there's just... more fun facts. It's de- no, please listen, this is cool because demargination is when they like, they go from the margins of the blood vessels and they hop off and get in the bloodstream. So any time, this is... I'm going to bring this home in a second here. Yeah, okay. But anytime you have even like trauma, so you fall off a ladder 
or you had a crazy hard workout even like you, you mean like you exert like if you measured someone's white blood cell count in the bloodstream, it would be elevated. Mm -hmm. So when we have people that like come in from like a car accident and I get their blood work, their white blood cell count is elevated. doesn't mean they have an infection. It just means that they had demargination from that systemic response. And the reason I bring that up now, bringing it home, is that the immune system, there's, we, we, we sometimes separate like an immune response to infection from an inflammatory response. And they're the exact same thing. Right. We don't call it an, like an infection immune response unless they're, it's like fighting off an infection with that overgrowth of bacteria or the pathogen. But the inflammatory response is it's the same cells doing the same things, just in a more localized fashion, mm -hmm. and maybe without a pathogen for other reasons, right? So it might be you have an inflammatory response because, again, you fell off a building and you've got some micro trauma to well, your right, vessels. Because repair, like the inflammatory response is going to be used in repair as well as like fighting <laughs> and i mean so like if, if i harm a muscle or if i work out too hard like any of that kind of stuff right like you have inflammation of those areas so that your body can repair doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively fighting a pathogen they're just cleaning up and rebuilding exactly. so so yeah kind of two inflammatory and immune very similar just sort of different methods and how they're accomplishing the same thing cool um so what happens with sepsis, a lot of people think that sepsis is a systemic infection, meaning that you have an infection and then it gets into your bloodstream and now it's a lot of different places. And now since our body is fighting that on lots of different fronts, that's what makes it sepsis. That's not correct. What, what's correct about sepsis is that it is an overwhelming and life-threatening response to an infection. Now, Often we get septic because we have a systemic infection, because that infection got everywhere and now our immune system is overwhelmed. We have this overwhelming response for reasons that we don't really understand. So like we still haven't been able to define why it happens. But basically what's happening in sepsis is we have an inflammatory dysregulation as we're attempting, our body's attempting to fight um, a, a pathogen and it's basically overreacting. So it is more akin to autoimmune diseases than it is to a specific type of infection or getting to a certain place. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times what happens, we relate sepsis a lot of times to those systemic-like infections, like like things like UTIs or like anything that can get into the bloodstream or oh, anything with the heart because it's easier than for any type of pathogen to get all over the place. And when a pathogen is all over the place, we're more likely to go septic because of the overreaction of the immune response. But all those infections start local. Like every infection starts local. Like UTI, acute cystitis is just a bladder infection. Right. And we treat that all the time. And right. it never goes like, but again, and, and even things like, you know, uh, a skin infection, right? If you have cellulitis of the skin, that's we treat that all the time. It's a local infection. We give you know we give antibiotics for it. It goes away on its own. But to your point, when it gets systemic, and it's to, I love how you define that because it's not that the infection went systemic. It's that the response went systemic, mm -hmm. and that's the part where we don't really I think know still how exactly what what are the what is the cascade of triggers that can cause. I mean we know some of them, but when that happens, now we have we call it an overwhelming infection. And really what we're talking about is an overwhelming response to the infection because the infection has gotten past our a few layers of our immune defense now, right? Like we, we obviously like in the local infection send a bunch of white blood cells there to attack it, to work on it. But for some reason, it's not working. The infection is now spreading. At some point, our, our immune response and system gets overwhelmed. And that's what we call sepsis. Right. That's cool. So... 
and again, like the reason why we talk about UTIs and the blood and like air, that's because it's easier for pathogens to go systemic when they're connected to the bloodstream. They're connected to pathways that can get them all over the body, right? So like a urinary tract infection has a high incidence of going septic because it's so connected with the blood. It's not just because like, you know what I mean? Like it's not like if you have an upper respiratory infection, that's... I see what always going to turn into. So, saying. like, there's yeah, certain yeah. localized areas that we have a greater concern of, right? It's also why we pay attention to like catheters that are in people or IV lines that are in people, because if those, if you get infection localized at that site, it's introduced to the bloodstream, and now we'll travel a lot of different places. That's actually a good point because the, these are also you think about it very like highly vascular areas, right? They have a lot of blood flow to them and from them, and thus more highways for the pathogen to hop on and get to other spots, right? That's sepsis. Sepsis is that overwhelming, life-threatening response. We can call it an inflammatory dysregulation. What septic shock is, is shock from sepsis, (laughs) essentially. So what septic shock is definitively is basically a drop in blood pressure, overall perfusion, due to sepsis yeah and we can talk about that from a shock standpoint it's a thing it's a distributive shock which we can talk about mm-hmm. um it's actually interesting what, as you're saying that i'm kind of realizing too this and we're talking about sepsis being essentially an overwhelmed response and if you think about it from a local and this kind of hypervascular type of situation i'm talking about it's like you were fighting off the infection in a local area because you are and because of those super highways a lot of the pathogens are now hopping on and they're not going and causing like infection in other areas but they're still out there in the body so the immune system now has to fight them out in the body and at the localized multiple site. fronts yeah so multiple fronts and then they and then it gets overwhelmed and then we on a systemic level try to fight the way we do on a localized level which causes shock and things like that to occur exactly because yeah if you if you have dilation and heating up of an area everywhere well right. now we have where our blood pressure is going to tank because we dilated all the vessels, right? So lots of issues that can happen. And let's actually, I think this is a good point to go there a little bit since we're, because I think it's the same train of thought here is that if we talked about in those localized areas, one of the things we do is we slow down the blood. We slow it down by dilating those vessels. We said we dilate those vessels because those white blood cells are jumping into the bloodstream, slipping out into the you know area to fight the infection. On a global level, if every single blood vessel or the majority of your blood vessels are dilating in that way, that's distributive shock, right? right? The, there's no volume problem. We've got the same amount of blood and plasma as we did before, right? The heart's pumping it all fine, right? But because there's so much area for the fluid to fill, there's too much area. So now the whole system starts to drop, and that's that's what that distributive shock is. Septic shock, anaphylactic shock are those types of responses. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's not a lack of fluid. It's a lack of, or it's, a, it's excess space. Mm-hmm. So that's why we would give things like constrictors and stuff to handle a lot of those types of different yep. shocks. Um, yeah, very cool. I'll also mention, too, there are, you know, there's a lot of research showing that, like, microclotting and things like that in order to cordon off areas, when you have that systemically, you have microclotting happening everywhere. Well, now we have lack of blood flow to different places, so we have lack of perfusion to a lot of different places, and then you start running into, like, organ failure because of, you know, sustained lack of perfusion all over your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about septic shock, and then eventually when we start talking about... Um, like severe sepsis versus sepsis. Yeah. Uh, cool. So just kind of perusing this stuff, risk prevention, just an overview. Obviously, like people are more, the, the weaker your immune system and the more vulnerable you are, the more 
susceptible you are to sepsis, right? So we look for sepsis particularly, and we're concerned about it in the elderly who have a weakened immune response because they're old and things are wearing out, in infants because they haven't built a, a very clean immune response yet, in people with chronic illness because they already are constantly being attacked, right? And then people with an impaired immune system already. So maybe I have an autoimmune disease or I have a hyperactive immune system, like I'm more likely to go septic then, right? So what we have to be careful with is source control all the time. So what, what hospitals do and what providers do out in the field all the time is they need to be very careful that they're using aseptic technique and anything that could introduce potentially a pathogen to the body so that that won't go, develop and then go septic, right? And, not, and that's for everyone, right? So we, like, so we have these like higher risk populations and then you have these kind of higher risk procedures you know, procedures or like I said sources that could cause it that we need to be aware of as well right right so some things that you'll bump into um if you have an iv in for a longer period of time higher chance that that can develop an infection get some inflamed area in there that infection can get in the bloodstream and it can run rampant right uh catheters so urinary catheters if i'm sticking something up in you you're right I'm, I'm getting involved in fluid and blood systems and like you said very vascular areas there's risk there to develop infection um wound sites central lines anything that's going directly into the bloodstream or that we're dealing with an opening in our body right we got to make sure those are clean that's why we change things often that's why we make sure we're super aseptic we're double gloving on, on stuff like that um hospital acquired pneumonia can happen a lot too because you're basically developing you've been laying down for too long essentially you're not using an incentive spirometer you're not trying to like move that you develop hospital acquired pneumonia a lot of hospital required acquired um diseases in general tend to be like a little bit more buffed of a <laughs> of a bug because they are resistant to things like bacteria uh, antibacterials and stuff like that. so essentially like, like pathogens that survive in a hospital setting where we're treating them with we're treating lots of people with lots of antibiotics stuff like that like the ones that survive long enough right end up being ones that are more resistant to antibiotics and things like that too yep which is why you know there's an advantage to get people out of the hospital it's like why, why during covid it was like oh we don't want to bring everybody into the hospital because now this disease is here right so it's like getting them out soon enough but without good post care they'll come back in you know and, and they'll, they'll develop it at home so um, so things that we need to make sure we do, good wound care, wash your hands, uh, treat your initial infections and treat them completely, right? If Chris gives, prescribes me an antibiotic and I only take that antibiotic until I feel better, I haven't taken the entire thing, which means I probably haven't beat the virus or I'm sorry, the bacteria down enough, right? And it'll, it can develop and come back stronger, now resistant to the antibiotic. So it's very important to finish out antibiotic regimens in your own treatment and treatment of your patients, right? Um, vaccines are, are very important, right? Vaccines are our best way to be able to combat viruses. So when we can give ourselves the tools, give our immune system the tools uh, with a vaccine in order to fight certain infections, very deadly ones, um, we, we need to be able to do that. Vaccines, again, we'll say this again, vaccines are probably the most important thing that has happened in medicine in the last 500 years, maybe ever. I would agree. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I can trump you on with that. And I can't, so please continue. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> 
All right. And then finally, uh, post-care in general. If we're discharging people from the hospital after treatment or we're treating them in the field and then leaving them be, if we don't give them proper instructions on how to keep things clean and how to continue their antibiotic regimen, stuff like that, and they don't follow those instructions appropriately, they're going to be back in our in our ambulance or on our stretchers or in our beds soon enough, right? So in our hospital beds. You shouldn't well, really yeah, take a I patient. Guess, yeah. You shouldn't take a patient to your bed. See, I'm just my mind is so clean that I didn't even go there with it. I have a lot of I I, I spend a lot of time with attorneys any medical legal cases. <laughs> All right, so we'll be quick about this. What we want to make sure that you can do as a provider is recognize sepsis, right? And then we'll talk a little bit about the treatment. So recognition of sepsis. If you talk to the Sepsis Alliance, um, they're like a big initiative just trying to get like more towards like lay people and basic providers about how to recognize te- sepsis. They go with the TIME acronym, T-I-M-E. So temperature, infection, medical or mental decline, and then extremely ill. So if you have those four things. If someone's got a high temperature and they look really bad, they might have sepsis. And they're talking weird because we... They have an altered mental status. Yeah, they might have sepsis. And these are tools to basically increase our suspicion of sepsis. Sepsis can be confirmed, but it's going to be usually through lab work. So this is one thing else, because there's, there's a couple of these that we're going to share, you know, and some of the ones you guys have probably heard of more, like SIRS and things like that. Like, again, these are recognition tools. Screening. So this tools. does not mean 100% that someone has sepsis in the way we're defining sepsis. These are screening tools we use to increase our suspicion, which we talk about all the time, is one of the most important things we do in medicine. If you never thought about it, you're not going to diagnose it. Um, and also to, you know, early recognition means early treatment, right? So we're going to go looking for an infection source early or earlier than we would have if we were, like, seeing these criteria. And that's that's the important part. Sometimes if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a platypus. That's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know how often, but... Right, but... Just saying there's, there's exceptions to these rules. So, Do you think platy... No, I got a lot they of questions. Look like a duck. They look like they a duck. Look like do a they quack? Duck. Do platypuses quack? God, I hope not. That would be actually terrifying. But what noise do they make then? Because there could be other more terrifying notices that that creature could make. We're going to have Jamie insert a platypus's call at this point <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> I love giving Jamie just impossible tasks. All right, good. Um... Okay, so what you might be more familiar with, a little more hospitally, is the SIRS criteria. Uh, it's a screening tool for SIRS for basically um, systemic inflammatory response syndromes, right? So systemic inflammatory response would require a temperature increase, tachycardia, tachypnea, breathing quickly, and then leukocytosis, or sometimes called leukopenia, which is basically just a high white blood cell count. And this makes sense, right? We're hotter. There's a faster heart rate in response to the dilation of vessels. We're breathing a little bit faster because there's a lack of perfusion. And we have increased white blood cells because our body is producing more soldiers because we're fighting something probably. And typically the way we report SIRS is like, you know, one out of four, two out of four, three out of four. If you've got two out of four criteria for SIRS, that should increase your suspicion. If you only have one, I actually would argue that like you could say, like, ah, you know what, it's probably not. A, you know, a septic type picture. But once you've got two, then we start to need to increase our index of suspicion there. Right. So it is important to remember, though, that you can have systemic inflammatory responses 
that are outside of the presence of an infection. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you got burnt all over, right? You got third degree burns on a third of your body, you're going to have a systemic inflammatory response, but there's not a pathogen involved either, right? right. So what we do to define sepsis is we, take, we typically take SERS criteria. We've got two out of four of those. And we know there's a presence of the infection because we can, we've drawn labs and we've seen it. Right. Well, and that's the part. So, like, basically, so for like, think about another situation like trauma. Like, you're going to have increased heart rate. You're going to have tachypnea. You're going to have, um, like, like I talked about with demargination, like leukocytosis and things like that. So, that's three out of four SERS criteria, but there's no source of infection. So, once we get two out of four SERS criteria, if we're measuring those, we say, okay, I need to go look for an infection source. Right. So, this is why, like, a trauma patient comes in, like, you fell off a ladder. Let's put it this way, right? You fell off a ladder and you have a high white blood cell count and you're a little tachycardic and you're a little tachypnic. Well, that's three out of four surge criteria. Now, I know you fell off a ladder, but I'm probably going to go look and make sure, though, that you don't have a urinary tract. I'm going to measure your urine, which maybe I wasn't going to before. I'm going to check, you know what I mean? Like, so we're going to check for things and start to look for that infection. And if we find one, now we have def the definition of sepsis, right? Cool. So SERS plus an infection equals sepsis. Um, but remember, you can have non-infection systemic inflammatory response like burns and trauma. One thing I want to add here, too, is is that, like, I think the, because I even, like, notice myself do it when we're talking about this, is, like, I quickly go to, like, oh, I got to draw labs and get a urine and maybe a chest x-ray to look for pneumonia. But there's some other important things, like maybe starting to ask more questions, right? Like, get a more thorough history of, like, have you been sick? Have you been feeling? Right. Like, have yeah, you, like, you fell off a ladder, but... This seems like a overreaction. Maybe to just you went off a ladder. Have you been sick lately, or do you have like a wound that's open? Exactly. And I was going to say that part too, right? Go looking, like you know, undressing the body, looking, looking for wound and you know, wounds and things like that. Because like, did you fall because you slipped in its trauma, or did you get dizzy, lightheaded, and fall because you had a systemic right. infection? I mean, like you this altered mental status, which is a certain criteria, right? Or a time exactly. Criteria, right, and then you you pass out and you fell off the ladder. Right. So exactly. lots of things where you can. I would just be really careful when people come in around ladders. Clearly, like, I am, like, very concerned about anybody who's on a ladder. Yes. No, but, like, again, like, just when you're looking for this, so you're going you're gonna to use all of your tools. And, again, this is taking it back to basics, right? Looking over the whole body for signs of infection, right? Listening to the lungs, checking a chest x-ray to see if they've gotten a pneumonia. Getting blood work in a urine sample, all these those kind of things, too. But then doing a really good history now. Like, now I'm not asking you questions about your trauma. I'm asking you questions around my concern about infection. And this is where we can really differentiate ourselves as providers to provide really high-quality care. Because now we're, again, we've got that index of suspicion because we've used a tool like this. And now we're going and looking in the appropriate way. So the SOFA score is a little bit more of a modern tool. And it uses vital signs instead of, like... Um, I mean, I guess the other one does vital signs. It's too, very similar. It's, it's very similar. It's like series. defined by like numbers. So a respiratory rate of greater than 22, a systolic blood pressure of less than 100, and then some sort of altered mental status measured by GCS or AFPU. You've got to remember like when we're creating these like recognition tools, this is all research-based typically, right? So we, we put together these things and then we go and test it. So are, are we as providers better able to identify potential sepsis by using this score versus this score, or we're more, we do it more quickly, or we find that this one's more accurate. So it's all about like trying to give ourselves tools to do the job better, but it's the same. It's the same thing. Right. Um, so we define severe sepsis from sepsis, which would just be the presence of two or more source criteria and the presence of an infection. It becomes severe sepsis in our minds when we have like end organ dysfunction, mm -hmm. which would basically be as a result of lack of perfusion to an organ that's starting to cause organ failure. 
Now, you might ask, why would we have lack of perfusion to an organ? We're talking about immune response. We already covered this, right? That inflammatory response dilates vessels, slows things down, your blood pressure drops. That's going to cause lack of perfusion. You can have microclotting. There's a lot of different reasons why you're getting now lack of oxygen. Our body is busy fighting an infection instead of running. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now that it's not running appropriately, we're getting lack of blood flow and perfusion oxygen to an organ that organ starts to fail. That's what we call severe sepsis. And then we already covered this, but septic shock then, like this kind of end stage of sepsis would be, we were into septic shock. We're hypotensive now. Our blood pressure is too low and it's also not responsive to fluid resuscitation. So as I give you more volume to try to help you out, you're still staying at a low blood pressure Mm -hmm. because that volume can't make up for the, the, a high amount of space in, in, your, in your vessels because of the dilation. I so. think some examples of like end organ dysfunction. So really altered mental status. So if someone's got altered mental status and sepsis, it, that may be a sign of like severe sepsis in the sense that like they have decreased perfusion to their brain, mm-hmm. right? It's causing altered mental status. Another one that I think of right away is kidney dysfunction. So when you go into kidney failure, and, and I think the reason that comes to mind is it's something we can measure, right? I can measure a creatinine in the blood and see like, oh, this is like, mm-hmm. I'm seeing that ever heart failure though right so here's another example so like maybe someone's troponin is increased or their bnp right like a heart failure type of thing like the heart is not getting as much so that's another thing we'd be looking for in that regard um those are the main ones that i can think of i mean like the ones that are measurable yeah the ones that are measurable right yeah exactly actually in severe sepsis sometimes too you'll see people go into liver failure like they're like their their liver shuts down too so things that we can measure but like i said these are the things that we need to be thinking about well and think of your patient's history and if they already have like some sort of cirrhosis and now we have Mm -hmm. those organs are going to be affected the quickest because they already have kind of like a long-term condition right so if you're already susceptible to kidney failure because maybe you have diabetes or or conditions that like affect the kidneys um, or can affect the kidneys, you know, they're under, they're taxed more Then you're going to see kidney failure faster than you're going to see the other organs fail. So it's interesting stuff. Um, So let's get finally to treatment. What are we going to do about this? So the sepsis six is what I really liked in terms of like trying to memorize what, what we do about sepsis and the sepsis six in, includes basically three things we put into the body and three things we take out of the body in order to try to treat sepsis. So the three things that we put in, we're going to put oxygen in. <laughs> we're going to give them oxygen. We're going to give them fluids. And you'll have to base like what fluids you're giving based on their particular condition and then based on like your like operating protocols in that area, you know, even even for docs because some places will say, I mean, what did you guys do? So there's usually a lot. it's 500 milliliters of fluid. Well, we usually we'll do like at first. Mean, this is this has changed over time, even since I started practicing medicine. So it used to be like two or three liters, yeah. like normal saline up front. Then it was like, well, it should be lactated ringers. And then it's like, ah, we should only do 500 to start. And then long story short is they need fluids. And the best way to measure if we're adequately replacing or supporting their volume is one of the outs, yes. which I won't give away. But it's like, so like, I, I, again, this is why I think Jason's saying like, go based on your hospital protocol, your, because there's a lot of different research. Again, like when I started, it was like, this is how you do it. And that's changed dramatically. It's going to be so. different based on your local area and yeah. kind of what the current studies are yeah, and what you're exactly. involved in. So, and your patient, obviously, like don't give them three liters of fluid if their blood pressure is fine now. Right. <laughs> or, or they have a history of heart failure. Now we got to kind of yeah. play this game of like, yeah, exactly. exactly. I feel like that's like one of my greatest challenges as an ER physician is people who are septic and have a history of heart failure. Yeah. Because man, like threading that needle of keeping their volume high yeah. enough without overflowing them or I have to intubate them. I mean, it's just like, it's, I don't like it. Yes. So I don't do it. 
<laughs> so I, I refuse to. Turn I always give those. I always tell a resident figure that patient. <laughs> so. Uh, so oxygen fluids and then broad spectrum IV antibiotics. And what we mean by broad spectrum is the type of antibiotics that kill a lot of things, right? Uh, sepsis tends to happen more in gram positive organisms, but it can also happen in gram negative. So we're just going to give them an antibiotic that we know will like take out a lot of things, right? Eventually, we want to get that spectrum to be a little bit more um, narrow. Like we want to try to find something that's going to particularly kill the curtain infection that they're fighting because giving broad spectrum antibiotics all the time is dangerous because you can build up resistance to antibiotics. You don't build it up. <laughs> the virus can build, or the, the bacteria can build up a resistance to those types of antibiotics and be able to th still thrive in that. And if we do that with our broad spectrum, we're running out of tools that we can fight the antibiotics. This is actually an interesting thing too, because so I've obviously have done travel medicine for a number of years. So like working in different hospitals across the country, different areas will have different resistance patterns. So like, it's so much, it's not so much like we use too many broad spectrum antibiotics. It's not necessarily that like you specifically now have a res like resistance to it, but the community, essentially the, the pathogens that tend to exist and survive in the community start to become resistant to these antibiotics that we're using a lot. So like I've been in hospitals where like it's a urinary tract infection and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to give ciprofloxacin. And they're like, oh, actually in this area, most of our UTIs are resistant. It's super interesting. Yeah. Like the community effect of antibiotics. People, people don't think about that component of it, but yeah. So you start obviously with broad spectrum because you want to try to get it under control because they're dying then, like this right. is a this is a bad situation right, right? <laughs> so. and then we're and then we're like to your point going to narrow it down so that we can specifically treat that and not build resistance elsewhere and that's going to help with our with our three outs so our three outs are going to be we're going to run blood cultures and that's going to help us narrow down what the particular virus or i keep saying virus the particular bacteria would be um and like you were mentioning earlier to me off camera like they'll actually like take it and they'll drop it into a sample of a bunch of petri dishes with a bunch of different antibiotics and see which one it grows in, which one it doesn't grow in, which one kills it, you know, mm -hmm. handles it. And then we can kind of narrow down what we're doing. Uh, we're going to check urinary output and that's to balance their fluid like Chris was talking about. So and that's, that's the best way to measure yeah. fluid. That's uh, an exam question. I feel like I've seen this exam question on the NREMT. I've seen it on the NCLEX. I've seen it in my medical school stuff. Like what is the best way to measure fluid resuscitation tends to be urinary output. It's not blood pressure. Blood pressure is important, but you got to measure urinary output, especially in the long term, especially as we move these people to the ICU and things like that, like, you know, ins and outs, they call them, right? So like measuring like how much they're taking in both orally if they are, as well as like IV fluid wise, and then out while it's their urinary output. Because that's going to be the first index of suspicion of like end organ failure, like kidney dysfunction and things like that. So. Which is why like on the floors, we do need to take it seriously when someone strict eyes and O's, you know, and you yeah. sneak them up cup of coffee or something like that like you have to record that stuff because Super like important. We're, we're talking about life and death stuff even though the patient seems fine right yeah, yeah um and then the last thing that we would pull would be lactate and lactate's basically gonna judge how our immune response is reacting still so if it's still we have a crazy high raised lactate that means that we have we still have this kind of increased immune response so we want to get that lactate down or, mm -hmm. or show signs that the lactate has dropped so that means that we're winning the fight and right? sometimes an elevated lactic acid or lactate is maybe a signs of severe sepsis because what you know where that's coming from is that you imagine when your body's not getting oxygen when the when the different tissues of your body are not getting oxygen your body reverts to anaerobic metabolism meaning like anaerobic I'm not using oxygen yeah. to still create energy 
in order to do that, a byproduct of that is lactic acid. So if lactic acid levels are extremely high, then it could be a sign of severe sepsis. It's obviously a sign of like decreased perfusion in general and measuring that over the course of time to make sure that's coming down and not going up. Like it basically gives us an indication of are our therapies working or are they not? So if you look at this, it's it's basically stabilization, right? And then a little bit more investigation. Oxygen, I give them oxygen to stabilize them because they have lack of perfusion. I give them fluids to try to balance their blood pressure out and get perfusion going so I can get them oxygen to their their organs, right? I give them broad spectrum antibiotics because I just want a shotgun method and try to start killing the thing that's hurting them. Then I'm going to take blood culture so I can get more specific about my antibiotics. I'm going to get a urinary output to make sure that my fluid resuscitation is working well. And I'm going to get a lactate to see if it's if this general strategy is working or, or not, right? Mm-hmm. If we need to change things up. So that's your three in, your three out. That's the sepsis six. And that is how we would treat it. One important thing for, I mean, nurses know this, I think, but doctors sometimes forget too, and new nurses, but like, make sure you're pulling blood cultures before you start the IV antibiotics. Yes, yeah, uh, That's one thing, because again, this is a situation where the infection's not local anymore. Remember, we talked about these bacteria, these pathogens have jumped on to, into the bloodstream and are just kind of traveling throughout the body. So we can measure them in the blood, but if we start giving antibiotics first and it starts to kill it, we might not catch them uh, and we need to in order to figure out what's antibiotic going to be best and that sort of thing. So. And it is worth mentioning too, like viruses, you know, different different thing than antibiotics, right? Viruses are virals. We would have to give things like antivirals and you can obviously, or vaccines, you know, but you can't obviously respond to like COVID-19 and things like that can, can get you septic, septic if you have that immune response to it. Yeah. So um, it's not like we just do this for bacteria. We just change our strategy a little bit. We wouldn't give you antibiotics. We give you antivirals. So cool. Um, That's all I got for us. Awesome. Great. No, I think that's an awesome summary. So again, if you're looking to do this for credits, make sure you check out guardiancme.com. Watch it there. Take a quick quiz on what we talked about today. Uh, Get some CAPSI credits if you're EMS. Nursing credits are coming uh, within the next couple of months. So we're very excited about that. We'll announce when that's fully up. Also check back there, guardiancme.com to see when, when that's up and running, you'll see it there. So definitely check that out too. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Don't be late. Chris certainly won't be. Stay sweet. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks so much for taking a listen. Uh, if you are studying for the National Registry exam, we're here to help. We have a National Registry prep program uh, to help you pass that exam. Check us out at guardiantestprep.com. If you'd like continuing education credits uh, for listening to our podcast or watching this on YouTube, Follow us at guardiancme.com, 100% free CAPSI credits. Uh, No matter what state or country you're in, uh, we're here to help. So again, we thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week.